My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Lord, we pray that as I preach your word, that your Holy Spirit would make it living and active and powerful. May it continually transform our hearts and conform us into the image of your crucified Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So in today's two readings from the Gospel according to St. Mark, we heard two very different events And you probably noticed the shift in tone from one to the next. And that's because today isn't just Palm Sunday, it's also Passion Sunday. Now, traditionally, Passion Sunday is two weeks before Easter, I believe. Uh, But some lectionaries, I think ours does as well, puts it together on on Palm Sunday as well. And our, our focus shifts from one to another. Our focus then begins to shift with Palm Sunday from our own self-reflection and repentance towards the coming suffering, ignominious or shameful death, and the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from the joyous entrance into the city of Jesus as he rides in like a conquering king, and we travel with him from there to the upper room, the garden, the cross, the tomb, and ultimately to new life. And Palm and Passion Sunday, and and the stories are so familiar to us that we sometimes lose the power that they convey. But the reason why we repeat the pattern of services in the church every year is precisely so that we can ourselves continually enter into those stories and walk in them ever fresh. Because that's what worship is. The Christ-centered recollection and our participation in the pattern of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When reading and studying for today's sermon, I was stunned at the threads that these stories have and how these threads link up with Scripture as a whole. And and modern scholarship likes to try and treat Scripture as merely an amalgamation or merely a mashing together of of different pieces that don't really have a coherent unity or, or an overarching theme. But they would be wrong. Scripture is in some sense a collection, right? It's several different books from several different genres written by many different people over a very long period of time that was edited and compiled into what we have today. In spite of that, there is still an overarching unity in its testimony to the one who provides the reason for its existence in the first place, our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a remarkable unity in Scripture. And it's only when we place Christ as that interpretive lens, Christ as the one through whom Scripture has come to us and through and around what the whole story of the Bible revolves, it allows us to see and understand. And instead of trying to break down these narratives today, what we just heard read, I'm going to focus on a few themes that we see in today's readings. The first one is going to be on kingship. So in the triumphal entry, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem like a king. And a few years ago, I preached on this exact thing, the entrance of a king into the city. And this was called back then uh, in the Roman world, a triumph. 
So generally a Caesar or a conquering general would parade like, like this into a city that they had just conquered or to celebrate in their own home city their, their military might, uh, displaying their victories by showing off prisoners taken as slaves, conquered kings and leaders and other displays of their wealth and majesty and the wealth of, of those that they had conquered And the Jewish historian Josephus, writing about the triumph given to the general Titus, who also later became a Caesar, noted this, It is impossible to do justice in the description of the number of things to be seen and to the magnificence of everything that met the eye, whether in skilled craftsmanship, staggering richness, or natural rarity. For almost all the remarkable and valuable objects which have ever been collected piece by piece by prosperous people were on that day massed together, affording a clear demonstration of the might of the Roman Empire. That's a, a, what a triumph, that's only a, a piece of what a triumph would look like. There's much more we could talk about. But Jesus is an altogether different king. The conquerors of Rome would ride in with staggering richness, rare items, Everything that displayed their majesty and their might. But Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem that way. And it's interesting, when we read Holy Scripture, we see Jesus riding forth one day as the conquering king. In his glory and in his power and in his majesty. But here we see his power and his kingship clothed with humility. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. He enters Jerusalem in almost a mockery of an actual triumphal entrance. It's almost like a bizarro triumphal entrance. He enters on a colt, and the only thing in his retinue are his disciples and people spreading leafy branches and coats in front of him. There's no, there's no gold, there's no silver, there's no displays of majesty and power. It's just his disciples, some branches, and some coats on a donkey. He's not riding a chariot. He's not riding a war horse. He's riding on a humble colt. Symbols of power and might are subverted by his humble entrance. And we see the true majesty and power through his humility. As Jesus is greeted as the coming coming messianic king of Israel. But we see something else at work in the passion narrative then of Mark chapter 15 that highlights Jesus' kingship. The text says that they gathered a whole battalion of soldiers, around 600 men. And what did they do once Jesus was delivered to them? And keep in mind that the whole point of crucifixion is to heap the maximum amount of of pain as well as shame on the person being killed And just as the people put their cloaks on the ground in the path of Jesus, the soldiers clothe him in purple, a color reserved for wealthy royalty. And just as the people waved the branches and spread them on the ground, the soldiers take thorns and mash it on his head. And as the people praised him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the soldiers kneel before him in mockery and pay him false homage, acknowledging him and calling him the king of the Jews. 
And this mockery isn't even limited to the Roman soldiers. Even the, the scribes and the chief priests get in on his will. They say as he's hanging on the cross, you thought you could destroy and rebuild the temple in three days. You saved others. You can't save yourself. You're supposed to be the Christ. You're supposed to be this messianic king, the conquering king like David was. What are you conquering by dying? Get yourself down from the cross. It's the coming to pass of what David prophesied in Psalm 22, 6 through 8. And we know Jesus has this psalm in mind because we heard the first line of it read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in verses 6 through 8, the psalmist and Jesus is saying, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Great irony here being that even though they're doing this in mockery, Jesus actually is the king of the Jews. Not only that, he is the king of the entire universe. And the power and the might and the dominion of the Caesars of Rome and the power and the might and the dominion of any other ruler or president or premier or prime minister or dictator, all of those powers, all of, those, all of that might will fade. But the true king Christ will still reign over all things. Let's talk a little bit about humility. One thing that is worth noting in this account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is Jesus does not prepare for or order for his followers to organize him a parade. Jesus, Jesus doesn't sit down with a marketing team and try and brainstorm uh, and storyboard effective ways to try and sell his message. There's no connected social media blitz to go hand in hand with this. There's no forethought on organizing music or heralds to trumpet his arrival. He doesn't send out any mailers. He doesn't contact all the influencers of Jerusalem and say, hey, we're coming here. We'll give you this if you, if you give us some publicity and stump us so we can have maximum exposure all he does is he asks his disciples, go to that village that we're walking to anyway. Go to that specific house over there. Snag that colt and bring it back to me. And if anyone asks why you're stealing this colt, tell them I'm not stealing it. It's for Jesus. And they do. And they put their own cloaks on the colt for Jesus to sit on as he rides it. And imagine the excitement in the air that built to the point where it just boiled over to have the people spontaneously start praising him and running before him, celebrating him. The one who's worked these miracles, the one who has healed all of these people, the one who teaches with the authority of God, unlike the scribes, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the religious leaders, his teaching has authority, it has power. He's delivered people. He's coming into the city. He then rides to the temple. And according to the Gospel of Mark, he looks around for a little bit, and then he leaves to go stay at Bethany, maybe at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when he arrives in this city, he arrives when we compare excuse me, his entrance to what I just described earlier about kings, it is in total humility. Just like his incarnation into the world in the womb of the virgin and being born and living in a not-so-well-to-do area, and clothing his divinity in human nature. His entrance into the city reflects his humility. 
And this humility, brothers and sisters, continues through his confrontation with the religious leaders and his experiences before Pilate. Pilate listens to the religious leaders' arguments and then asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with, you have said so, which is basically him saying, yes. And that's it. He does not respond to anything else said, either by them or by Pilate. No response to his accusers and no attempt to try and clear his name. Just a humble acceptance of his mission and seeing it through, as the author of Hebrews says in 12, too, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand at the throne of God. And lastly, we're going to look at suffering, at suffering. Psalm 22 deals with this a little bit in detail in verses 14 to 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You, have, you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is the experience of our Lord Jesus on the cross. We kind of have a sanitized, arty vision of Jesus on the cross that doesn't really reflect the reality of his suffering. But I'm not going to go into minute detail, right? Because the point isn't detailing specifically, right, beat for beat each moment of agony. And I've heard sermons like this, and you may have heard sermons where the preacher in an eloquent voice, far more eloquent than what I'm doing right here, is able to describe what's happening, the sensation that Jesus is feeling as the nails are driven where they're driven, and and able to just describe using adjectives and, and verb, verbiage and, and everything, like using the, the power of rhetoric to get you to say that suffering is awful. And we even see movie versions of this, right, that, that, that came out several years ago. The point, though, isn't to focus on the, the suffering, right? And, and even in history, like in the medieval era, there, there, were, there were these some Christian mystics who focused a little bit too much, I think, on the sufferings of Jesus, so much so that they asked to feel the same pain that Jesus felt on the cross. But the point of that isn't so much the, the detail of the suffering. Jesus humbly accepted this, and he walked towards his own death voluntarily. He doesn't put up a fight when he's arrested. He doesn't fight back against the soldiers. He does not fight back even against being brought before Pilate. And he does not fight back. And he even refuses the narcotic of the wine mixed with myrrh, which would have eased some of his pain when it's offered to him. Right? The point is what we see in verse 30, 38 and 39 of Mark chapter 15. The point that this is working towards is the curtain in the temple is torn completely in two. And the centurion confesses upon witnessing Jesus' suffering and final breath that this was the Son of God. And it's interesting, right? Because what had just been happening before in the praetorium? The soldiers were mocking him and acclaiming him as king. Hail, King of the Jews! Hitting him, smacking him, torturing him. And at the foot of the cross, as he dies and gives up his spirit, the centurion, the commander of the soldiers, acknowledges him as the son of God. 
And we have to remember, brothers and sisters, that for the centurion and for Roman citizens, Caesar is considered to be and worshipped as a god. And, and it's interesting to note that this dead Judean moves this centurion to place Jesus in that category, affirming the kingship that he may have previously mocked. The suffering of Jesus. I think what we can glean from these three observations on Jesus' kingship, his humility, and his suffering is we see God's love in action. Jesus does this all willingly for the incredible good this is going to do because his blood purifies not just the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, which probably wasn't even there anymore. His blood purifies everything. The shedding of his blood on the cross is the sprinkling that we see on the altar in Leviticus, writ large on the entirety of the cosmos. Not only that, but Jesus, his endurance of the sufferings of the cross gives strength to us to bear our own sufferings, particularly our suffering against sin. The author of Hebrews points this out. In 12, verse 3 through 4, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you all haven't resisted sin to the point where your blood has been still spilled, but Jesus has. So don't grow weary in your faith. Don't give up your faith. Don't deconstruct your faith away only to lose it, and then after it's gone to try and capitalize off that faith by writing and podcasting about how backwards it all was and how terrible it all was. And when people do that, we see that even those who have left the faith still can't quite let it go, even if it's to turn into a mocker. And we see that Christ's shift from being hailed as king to be executed in suffering helps us to find meaning in our own suffering. And I wish I could remember where I heard this, brothers and sisters, but I once heard someone say that when we join our suffering to Christ's suffering, it gives our own suffering meaning. And I think that there's something to that because we don't serve a God that doesn't know what it's like to suffer. We serve a God who took on human nature to sanctify everything through suffering. Suffering as we do. St. John Chrysostom once said, Many men, when they see any of those who are pleasing to God, suffering anything terrible, as for instance, having fallen into sickness or poverty and, and any other the like, are offended, not knowing that to those especially dear to God it belongeth to endure these things. And when we're confronted with the entry in Jerusalem, followed by the gruesome scene of the cross, let us, brothers and sisters, be strengthened. Let us be encouraged to hold fast to Christ, no matter what suffering we may experience or are currently experiencing. Let us, like the centurion standing at the cross, apart from the mockers, apart from the scoffers, apart from the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, may we confess him as Lord, as Christ, as King, and as the Son of God of God, who, as St. Paul reminds us, 
loved me, and you should be pointing to yourself, and gave himself up for me. And to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, written in Jerusalem for our sake, be all glory and honor and power together with his Father and, from, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to GoFundMe.com slash ZionStoneChurchRepairFund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or on our website, ZionstoneUCC.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you. Thank you.